Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there's more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Captain Al Haynes and United Flight 232. Now let's continue with our story about United 232. When Flight 232 crashed, many people were killed, but miraculously, many more actually survived. Only 15 minutes from Sioux City, Jerry Schemmel noticed a woman and her small child slipping into an empty seat directly in front of him. A flight attendant was with them. Perhaps she believed that the mother and child might be safer in this location. The flight attendant handed the woman several pillows to wrap around the infant, who looked to be about two years old. Jerry watched as the child struggled to avoid his mother's grip, eventually crawling to the top of his mother's seat and smiling at Jerry, oblivious to the approaching danger. Jerry noted the location of the emergency exit, literally just a few feet away, and vowed to himself that he would help get the mother and her son to safety as quickly as possible. As part of his last briefing, Captain Haynes alerted the passengers that he would give them a 30-second announcement before the plane landed on the runway. Somehow, Jerry Schemmel wasn't comfortable with the idea that bending over in his seat was the best of the two options. He prepared for the landing by crossing his arms and leaning his head on the seat in front of him. When Captain Haynes gave the warning, it seemed to drag on forever before the plane made contact. This has got to be longer than 30 seconds with Schemmel's last mental impulse before the crash, an impact so hard that even years later he couldn't really verbalize what it felt like. It didn't sound or feel like something crashing. Instead, it felt like an inanimate object hitting an impenetrable wall, a sensation that jarred Jerry's whole body. Although he held on to the seat in front of him as tightly as he could, Schemmel lost his grip and felt the sensation of moving upward, the restraint of his seat belt keeping him from flying through the air, his body literally lifting off of his seat. Although his eyes were reflexively shut tightly, he was aware that the cabin lights were now completely dark, as other passengers' screams were also heard, along with the oppressively loud sound of the plane hitting and scraping the runway. Schemmel reoriented himself as firmly as possible and tried to re-grab the seat in front of him, but the interior of the plane was already severely damaged and the seat was no longer there to hold on to. Jerry then grabbed the armrests, aware of the plane moving at an incredible speed, but time seeming to pass at an agonizing rate. He got as low as possible, but opened his eyes to the sight of bodies flying over his head, one passenger still strapped into her seat. 
Objects flew by in all directions, and Schemmel sensed that it might only be a few more seconds before some projectiles struck him fatally, as a bolt of flame shot rapidly from the front of the plane past his location. Just when he got a sense that the plane was slowing down and the worst might be over, the fuselage flipped. For the first time, Schemmel started to experience pain, in his case, an intensely sharp burning up and down his spine. Now hanging upside down, he hoped that the plane would eventually right itself like an automobile flipping over, but it never did. As the seemingly endless skid continued, something struck Schemmel's head, momentarily knocking him unconscious. When the plane finally came to a halt, he was still strapped into his seat. He had no recollection of unclipping his seatbelt, but only an awareness that he was now standing on what was formerly the ceiling of the fuselage. Momentarily confused as to whether he was even dead or alive, he was brought back to reality by flames burning his right hand. Only a survival instinct drove him to seek an exit from the smoke, heat, and flame that was everywhere. The exit, or any semblance of the escape route he carefully located before the crash, was completely inaccessible. In fact, the wall the flight attendant, George Ann Del Castillo, was formerly sitting against in her jump seat, was now totally ablaze. Schemmel sensed that if he didn't quickly find a way out, he would suffer George Ann's fate. The only illumination was provided by the fire in the cabin, and in the chaos, as Jerry searched for an exit, he helped other passengers stand up or unstrap themselves from their seats. Hearing another passenger in his vicinity, he turned and eventually noticed a narrow beam of natural light. It was at that moment that Schemmel sensed that he would survive, and he began helping other passengers towards this newfound solution. Already two other male passengers were standing at the exit, calmly helping others out and into the sunlight. Jerry Schemmel stood nearby, helping others find their way out to safety. Eventually, he noticed a woman heading in the wrong direction. Back into the smoke and flames of the interior of the fuselage, he reached out and grabbed her arm, and as she turned around, Jerry realized it was the woman. Named Sylvia Tso, he observed trying to control her son, Evan, only minutes before the crash. He tried to direct her out of the plane, but hysterically she told Jerry she couldn't find her son and she couldn't leave without him. Off the top of his head, knowing that the situation was getting more dangerous by the second, Jerry just reflexively blurted out that he would look for her son, but she had to leave immediately. Reluctantly, she turned and headed towards the exit as Jerry watched her leave the plane. He was already wondering if he did the right thing, knowing that finding her boy was probably not possible. Within minutes, it became clear that there was no one else attempting to flee and that anyone else in the plane needed to leave. One of the two men by the exit told Jerry that they needed to go, the smoke and flames only increasing, and the chance of an explosion always a possibility. Schemmel walked through the opening and out into the brilliant light of the cornfield, and it was a few seconds before he got his bearings. The male passenger, a few steps in front of him, was urging him to move away from the plane as quickly as possible. Jerry was just about to break into a jog when he heard something from the interior of the plane. It wasn't loud, but it was unmistakably the cries of a small child. The other man, already too far away to hear the same thing, yelled that they had to get away from the plane. But Jerry told him he couldn't. He had to go back. Reflexively, he returned through the hole in the plane and into the burning fuselage. He had no idea in what direction he needed to search, but fortunately, the child continued crying. 
Quickly, he came to a spot that seemed to be where the cries were emanating from, but it was covered with wreckage. He could see little, the black smoke only increasing since his first exit, quickly trying to lift whatever was near the sound he was hearing. Schemmel moved three or four objects before he came to what he thought was perhaps an upright storage compartment in the plane's former ceiling. He reached in until he felt was the arm of 11-month-old Sabrina Michelson. As carefully as he could under the circumstances, he removed the infant and got out of the burning plane as quickly as possible. He didn't even think to really look at the child until he was safely well out into the cornfield. Suddenly concerned that the infant might be injured, Jerry looked down wondering if she had some internal injuries. An enthusiastic smile reassured him that she was probably okay. Schemmel ultimately made it to a group of survivors clustered around a woman with a severely broken leg. No longer as disoriented, he realized he had no idea where J. Ramsdell was, and he decided he would head back towards the wreckage to see if he was in the area or anyone else in the vicinity needed help. A woman in the group agreed to take and look after Sabrina, and Schemmel made his way back again to the wreckage, this time the hulk of the fuselage burning so intensely that he couldn't even get close to it. He now also was aware enough to notice that this was only a small portion of the entire plane. With a shudder, he wondered what happened to the other parts of the jet and the people inside. Although Jerry Schemmel's experience was incredible, it was far from unique. Flight attendant Susan White was situated in the rear, her jump seat facing the tail of the airplane. She heard Captain Haynes tell the passengers that the landing would be the roughest they would ever experience, and she knew then that the flight was destined for something far worse than mechanical difficulty, and most likely many wouldn't make it. She spent her last minutes before strapping in, walking up and down the aisles explaining to the passengers exactly how to brace. In the last row of passengers was Susan Randa and her nine-year-old son, Dave, who was insisting on wearing a Chicago Cubs hat, even as he bent into the brace position. With a four-minute warning from the pilot, White got into the jump seat, took off her large earrings, and waited. When the other flight attendants started rhythmically telling the passengers to brace, Susan chimed in. Then the plane hit the runway. With an exit window right next to her, literally at eye level, she could only see fire. Then she could sense that the plane was somersaulting as three times she felt the spinning impact. For all landings, and especially this one, the bathroom doors were locked. But during the crash, these doors all flew open. The chemically blue toilet liquid flying everywhere and landing all over her. Soot, dust, and projectiles darkened the interior, a piece of metal ripping her clothing from waist to toe. Keeping her eyes open, she dodged any flying objects and noticed that the flame that she was initially certain would burn her alive was gone. Eventually, the plane came to a halt. For a few seconds, there was silence, and then Susan's training kicked in, and she began shouting for the passengers to leave the plane as quickly as possible. Except Susan White could not see what the other passengers in the tail section of the plane facing forward could see. There no longer was any plane. The entire tail and several rows of passengers had literally disconnected from the fuselage and come to a stop on its side. At an angle, many passengers were now suspended roughly 10 feet above the ground, their belts the only thing holding them in their seats. Susan Randa was so stunned that she was still even alive that she instinctively released her seatbelt, not understanding that it was the only thing keeping her from falling to the ground. She recalled hitting something on the way down and was momentarily unsteady before realizing that her son was still stranded above her. 
She got him to hold on and drop feet first, which he did successfully, a scrape on his ankle, the only injury between the two of them. Susan Randa started walking towards an opening and quickly found herself in the cornfield, the tail's interior now open-end, positioned away from the runway. With no one to tell them what to do, they made their way to a lit runway sign and sat down. As Dave complained that he had lost his hat and they would probably miss the Cubs game they were supposed to go to in Chicago, Susan just held her tongue, overcome with relief that they were even alive. Susan White was one of the last passengers in the tail to disentangle herself from her seat. Disoriented, she momentarily forgot that her belt mechanism was different from the other passengers, and it took her complete concentration to stop panicking and focus. Covered in toilet water, she also realized that she would fall to the ground if she didn't hold on. She finally maneuvered herself into a safer position, facing forward, and got ready to jump when she realized an older man was right beneath her, stuck in the metal debris. He was struggling, trapped by the metal, and she finally managed to get him to stop pushing and to wiggle sideways. As soon as he escaped, she jumped down, now fully aware that the rest of the plane was nowhere in sight. Several times she helped passengers disengage from their seats and navigate onto safe ground, many of these individuals bleeding profusely or clearly with broken bones. Finally, fire crew and emergency personnel began to swarm the interior of the tail, she ran out, into daylight, wanting to get out of the way, but asked one of the emergency workers what had happened to the rest of the plane. He told her that it had broken apart and that she was among the only survivors. When she asked specifically about the cockpit, he also told her it had shattered completely. Susan immediately thought of the pilots, and especially Dudley Dvorak. Actually, the cockpit had been damaged so severely that rescue workers intent on more identifiable parts of the wrecked fuselage ignored it completely, some firefighters running by it to more tangible pieces of the fuselage. The front part of the plane was so damaged that when a volunteer approached it and asked some firemen in the vicinity what it was, he was stunned when a voice yelled, it's the cockpit from inside of the wreckage. Soon the firefighters came over to examine the twisted piece of metal and wire that in no way resembled an airplane cockpit. Once the plane hit the runway, Denny Fitch's head smacked into controls and equipment directly in front of him. His head then popped back up and he quickly was able to recognize corn stalks in the windows of the cockpit. The front window was first a solid green, then brown, and then changed to black. Fitch could feel the nose of the plane tipping over and eventually the sensation of somersaulting. Finally, the tremendous force and terrible sounds thrashing the cockpit came to a halt. Fitch was upside down with mud in his eyes and ears. He couldn't see, hear, or even move, tremendous pain engulfing his entire body. His right arm was badly broken. He also suffered spinal contusions and facial lacerations that were pouring copious amounts of blood down his face and into his hair. Although he had no recollection of the crash... Haynes's major injury was a lacerated ear that required 93 stitches and some facial cuts that looked a lot worse than they were. Dvorak had broken his ankle and had suffered serious burns from the numerous wires that were pulled out of the fuselage and ultimately spooled around the cockpit as it spun down the runway. Records was probably the most critically injured with a broken pelvis, broken hips, broken sacrum, and numerous broken ribs. They were all alive and even conscious, but after their ordeal, they couldn't understand why rescue crews kept passing them by, 
not realizing that their former cockpit was now a pile of junk, completely engulfed in a tangle of wire. The firemen weren't even sure what to do, ultimately cutting through the cockpit debris with hacksaws. It would take a forklift and chains to lift the twisted metal slightly off of the ground, allowing Fitch and Dvorak to crawl out. Haynes had gotten wrapped around the steering mechanism and was tough to extricate. Records was the last one out. He would spend two weeks in either critical or intensive care and was unable to even talk to investigators, his ribs too severely broken. Many passengers were hurled completely out of the fuselage, entire rows still strapped into their seats when the rescue crews found their bodies. Surviving such an outcome also seemed impossible, but many actually did. Rescue workers were stunned to arrive shortly after the crash and watch as passengers strapped into their seats slowly stood up and walked away from where they landed. Others, in shock and fueled by adrenaline, unsuccessfully tried to do the same thing. Sitting in first class, Brad Griffin was on his way to Michigan to play in a golf tournament with his brother. In blue jeans with a handlebar mustache and wearing sandals, he was the epitome of happy-go-lucky laid back. When the plane started to experience problems, he began meditating, and by the time the crash was imminent, he was actually calm, trying to think positive thoughts. Upon impact, he remained conscious of the plane disintegrating as fuel ignited and flames suddenly was everywhere, the discernible structure of the fuselage disappearing. As the first-class cabin broke apart, Brad felt himself flying through the air, landing clear of the wreckage but at least a 100 yards away. He landed in a cornfield, but was still knocked unconscious. When he came to, his first sensation was how cool his feet felt. But when he tried to stand up and move quickly away, he realized his ankles were broken. Like several others around him, he decided to just lie down and wait for help. The first person to find him, a National Guard chaplain, initially thought he was dead. Brad Griffin did survive being thrown out of a burning jetliner, and his family airlifted him back to Colorado, where he spent two months in a full body cast. His injuries included two torn rotator cuffs, a fractured wrist, eight broken ribs, injured vertebrae, a collapsed lung, as well as his broken ankles. His complete rehabilitation took two years. That others did not survive was painfully clear to the emergency workers and the passengers who eventually were driven or walked to the Air National Guard headquarters building. Horribly mangled bodies and even limbs were scattered all over the vicinity of the crash. But, intent on saving any of the critically injured passengers, emergency personnel had no time to attend to the dead. Eventually, because of the sheer numbers involved, the decision was made to leave the dead on the field overnight. Jerry Schemmel was eager to make his way to the Guard HQ. Thirty minutes after the crash, the reality that he had not had contact with his boss since they exchanged a determined thumbs-up just before the plane hit the ground prompted a determination to locate J. Ramsdell as soon as possible. Before accepting a ride in an ambulance, he tried to help an older bloodied man sit up on the runway. The man was in such pain that Jerry lowered him back to the ground and lent him his jacket as a headrest. Before he got into the ambulance, he also saw a tangled row of seats with a dead woman and a young girl still strapped in. Their wrists had red bracelets already placed there by rescue workers who then moved on. Despite the pain he felt during the crash, Jerry Schemmel was checked out by a doctor. No serious injuries were discovered, and he was then asked to remain in a large open space set aside for those survivors not seriously injured. 
He expected at any time to come face to face with J. Ramsdell, but as time passed, first minutes and then hours, he started to have a sinking feeling that his boss might not have made it. In an effort to secure a telephone line to call his wife and his parents, Schemmel first agreed to do some nationwide radio interviews and then was invited to a local TV station where he watched as other survivors did live interviews on Nightline with Ted Koppel. One of the interviewees was a man named Mark Michelson, who talked about he and his wife and three children had survived the crash. It was Michelson's daughter, 11-month-old Sabrina Michelson, who Jerry Schemmel rescued from the burning aircraft. After the interview, Michelson and his family met Schemmel for the first time, and after an emotional discussion, they all agreed to keep in touch. Already early morning, a station employee generously offered to put up Schemmel, the survivor already agreeing to tell his story on Good Morning America, early that same morning. A limo picked him up and took him back to the local television station for his appearance. Throughout this time period, Jerry kept calling local hospitals, the morgue, and United Airlines to try and get an update on J. Ramsdell. None of these entities could provide any information, and reluctantly, on the afternoon of July 20th, Schemmel flew home to Denver, so exhausted that he slept for the entire flight home. In the immediate aftermath of the crash, in one of the airport's hangars, a temporary morgue was rapidly set up where bodies retrieved from the vicinity of the crash would be transported and placed in refrigerated containers. This started in earnest the day after the incident, again the focus the day before, finding and rescuing as many survivors as possible. But now, the grim task of opening body bags, removing clothing, and photographing cadavers, many frequently mutilated and horribly disfigured, was coordinated by the Iowa Department of Criminal Investigation. Because many of the dead died of smoke inhalation, dental records and fingerprints frequently were used for final identification, both dentists and FBI technicians involved in this massive effort. It took several days for this process to be completed as more bodies were discovered in the remnants of Flight 232. Eventually, J. Ramsdell's remains were identified, as well as those of 22-month-old Evan So, the child sitting with his mother directly in front of Jerry Schemmel. In all, 111 people died during the crash of Flight 232. One more passenger died in the hospital, bringing the exact death toll to 112. But 184 people actually survived, including seven of the eight flight attendants, including George Ann Del Castillo, as well as all four individuals in the cockpit. Who lived and who died was dictated by which section of the plane a passenger was seated. The plane broke apart into five distinct sections. All four individuals in the cockpit, although seriously injured, survived. Most of the first-class compartments separated into a distinct unit. Eighteen of 25 passengers in this section were killed. The largest section with the most survivors was the middle of the fuselage. Most of the occupants of this location able to make their way to safety. But even in the rear of this section, many died of smoke inhalation and some, like J. Ramsdell, were killed by the impact. The young commissioner, very near where the plane split from the rear of the aircraft. Only 11 of 39 passengers in Section 4 survived. Conversely, only two of the 11 individuals in the detached tail section of the airplane were killed. The NTSB and the FAA also immediately began an investigation as to what caused the catastrophic engine failure. But, 
missing much of the fan disk that came from engine number two. Their investigation bordered on speculation until October 10th, when an Alta, Iowa farmer named Janice Sorensen ran into two-thirds of the enormous engine part while operating a combine in her cornfield. By then, General Electric was offering six-figure rewards for any substantial recovery of parts from the damaged engine. Weighing over 400 pounds and partially submerged in the muddy field, the part still had some of the fan blades attached, and GE paid Sorensen $116,000. Days later, most of the rest of the disc was found in another nearby cornfield. While the official investigation commended the pilots for keeping the plane in the air, it determined that the fan disc suffered a catastrophic rupture as a result of a crack that grew over time and should have been detected through maintenance. The crack originated with the element that comprised the fan disc, titanium, and impurities that occurred during the forging process of this crucial substance. Fragments from the fan disc not only incapacitated engine two, they immediately severed or impacted the three elongated tubes that fundamentally powered the hydraulic system of the aircraft. One result of this analysis was the provision of an additional step in the titanium production process that removed the potential for impurities that enabled the initial fault in the fan disk. Life went on for the various survivors of Flight 232. One of the two men that Jerry Schemmel observed at one of the plane's exits helping passengers escape was named Michael Matz. Matz was a nationally prominent equestrian show-jumping rider who eventually would medal in the Olympics and was selected to carry the American flag during the U.S. team's participation in the procession that concluded the 1996 Olympic Games. He retired from show jumping in 1998 and embarked on another pursuit, training thoroughbred racehorses. Only eight years later, Matz reached the pinnacle of the sport when he successfully trained Barbaro, the dominant winner of the 2006 Kentucky Derby. A Hollywood ending dictated that the horse would continue on to win the Triple Crown. Instead, two weeks later, shortly after the start of the Preakness, Barbaro shattered many of the bones in his right rear leg. Despite complicated surgery, extensive rehabilitation, and Barbaro's gallant will to survive, Matz had to make the agonizing decision to euthanize the animal on January 29, 2007, six months after the initial injury. Jerry Schemmel suffered both immediate and secondary psychological issues that prompted his resignation from the Continental Basketball Association. He then pursued a long-standing desire to work as a professional sportscaster, eventually working for many years as the play-by-play announcer for both the Denver Nuggets and the Colorado Rockies. His travels frequently brought him to the Phoenix area, where he kept in touch with the Michelson family and was kept apprised of Sabrina Michelson's childhood progress. Again, in a perfect world, Jerry might have been able to attend her wedding ceremony or college graduation, footsteps along the path of a long and productive life. Unfortunately, in 2008, Schemmel heard that Sabrina, a possible suicide, had passed away at the age of 19. The distraught Michelson family has never confided in Jerry Schemmel or publicly discussed the actual circumstances of their daughter's death. Thomas Randolph, the DCI investigator tasked with photographing the bodies of the deceased who perished on Flight 232, was so traumatized by the event that he took early retirement and passed away prematurely at the age of 64 in 2005. 
Many of his co-workers believe that he never recovered from this experience. But the professionalism and even heroism of the entire crew received national attention and plaudits culminating with a September 1989 visit of all of the pilots and surviving flight attendants to the White House of George Herbert Walker Bush. All of the four inhabitants of the cockpit eventually recovered and returned to their jobs as commercial aviators. Denny Fitch even related his Flight 232 experience in an Errol Morris documentary in 2001. Before his death in 2019 at the age of 87, Al Haynes delivered many lectures and speeches about the events of July 19, 1989. He was always careful to note that luck played a major role in preventing a complete catastrophe that day. The location of the plane over the flat plains of the Midwest instead of the Pacific Ocean, the Rockies, or Manhattan, the absolute lack of turbulence over the normally summer thunderstorm-strewn region, the time of day providing daylight, and the only day of the week Wednesday where all 285 members of the National Guard were already present at the airport were each critical factors in even a partially successful landing and the immediate rescue of the survivors. Despite Al Haynes's modesty concerning this incident, it is clear that the flight crew's response bordered on the uniquely exceptional, as airline and governmental regulators always do after an aviation mishap of this kind. The incident is minutely studied, not only to establish cause, but to provide specialized emergency response training for pilots in the event that they experience such an emergency. One startling result of this process was the inability to duplicate this landing, even within a flight simulator, because each time such an exercise was attempted, the individuals confronted with the same set of simulated circumstances would inevitably crash. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about United Flight 232. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Flight 232, A Story of Disaster and Survival by Lawrence Gonzalez and Chosen to Live by Jerry Schemmel. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Mm-hmm.